Welcome to The Hold Up, the podcast where we re-examine all the pop culture that you used to love. Welcome back, dear listeners. As always, I'm your co-host, Kaylee. And I'm Sarah, and this week we're going to be talking about the 1990s Disney children's classic, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, I am so excited we are doing this for The Hold Up. Um, Beauty and the Beast has had a resurgence uh, in the recent years with the uh, live action remake as Disney is doing. And because this film, the animated film came out in 1991, I was born in 1988. And so I truly grew up with this movie my entire, entire cognitive life. Um, and I am just really, really thrilled to be talking about it. It is perhaps like my favorite Disney movie of like the classic Disney princess movies. Um, but it's not without its discussion points. Um, yeah, Sarah, what do you remember about this movie when you were a kid? So I saw it in theaters. Um, I remember that I the CGI was beautiful, like that ballroom, that library. It's like it really leveled, Disney really leveled up their animation, I think, for this particular movie. Um, so it's slick. I mean, the animation was of such a high caliber. The music is also fantastic. And Howard Ashman's lyrics are so much fun. Um, everything to do with Howard Ashman is always so much fun. Um, I was a big fan of Mrs. Potts because I loved Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> and Jessica Lansbury is a favorite of mine. Um, I don't think as much as people do idolize her, I don't think we idolize her enough. Like I want huh. people to worship her as a goddess, which is what she deserves in my opinion. Anyway, I have very positive memories of this movie as a child, but when you grow up and you start to I don't know, be able to conduct like a Marxist interpretation of this movie. You're like, this is fucked. Like a Marxist feminist analysis of this movie makes it unconscionable. And the messages it was sending children are pretty despicable. What about you? Oh, I'm excited to hear your Marxist feminist take. I uh, don't remember like the first time I watched this movie. I just remember it being in like my psyche constantly. I had two older sisters, one of them particularly loved Beauty and the Beast. Um, and so we watched it all the time. And I had, you know, fond memories. I really remember identifying with Belle as like, you know, just someone who wanted to get away from the place that they lived. Um, not that I hated where I grew up. I just, I wanted adventure. I, I, you know, adventure in the great, great wide somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I, that, that's what I really loved about it. I mean, as I grew up more and more, I, understood the kind of like Stockholm syndrome, you know, take of it. And then I realized that, you know, neither of the men really loved her. They just uh, wanted to possess her. Um, it was very bizarre. Um, and now I can like, just appreciate the film for what it is. I do love the music. It's pleasant to have on in the background while I'm doing other things. I did enjoy, you know, how they tried to like 
redo the live action films that was a little bit more, you know, Belle had a little bit more agency, but absolutely she did not meaningfully have any more. Um, they gave her outfit pockets, which was like supposed to be like a huge deal. Um, but you're like, okay, every outfit should just have pockets. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't so think that's enough to make it a feminist representation, but no. <laughs> It's not. Um, but Sarah, I'm interested on this in this like feminist Marxist take. The movie. Okay. I don't want to, I understand willful suspension of disbelief is important. And it's particularly important with entertainment from ch for children. And I understand that children's stories are also frequently allegorical and fairy tales are pretty much 98% allegory. I appreciate and understand all these things. Having said this, when we consider that Disney movies are designed to be consumed 50 times by children, right? Like they, by this period, Disney is doing gangbusters business with VHS. Mm -hmm. So they want to make the film, they want to make their films addictive. They try really hard to make music that's infectious and that you want to listen to again and again. They pour a huge amount of money into animation and amount of money that no one else at the time can compete with. They get celebrities to do the voices. Like they really are trying to hook kids and then they consume these texts a million times. And then the messaging really does matter. You can't say like, oh, this is harmless. Like representation informs how children see the world, particularly texts that, that are designed to be watched again and again ad infinitum, right? So the gender politics, the sexual politics, the class politics, I do think are relevant. Now let's start with, I mean, there's very obviously messed up gender politics. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. We all make jokes about how she had Stockholm syndrome because she starts out as the beast captive, then they fall in love. And she says, sings that song halfway through the movie that, you know, there's just something that I didn't notice before about him, right? And it's like, yeah, because now you're his captive. You're getting used to seeing him every day. This is not that he's becoming wonderful. It is that you are being brainwashed um, and you're being programmed to respond to him in a certain way because he's the only like live being you see other than like personified household objects like, like candelabras and teacups like the only mammal you see right mm -hmm. so as a film I do think that that's problematic and like Belle is just a prize to be won it's like Gaston is competing for her and so is the beast really and they literally have a physical altercation with each other and the winner ends up getting Belle. And I know the movie gives her agency because she chose the beast, but also like the fact remains he wins the fight too. So like, yeah, it's not much of a choice if you like have to choose him because there's the other person in this love triangle is, is gone, is dead. Um, also to be fair to Gaston, while he was, a, while he is a misogynist, I don't think he's more misogynistic than the beach who, beast who literally holds women captive. And yeah. as far as Gaston knew, he was just trying to save a woman who'd been kidnapped, right? Like from this beast, which is kind of terrifying. He looks like a bear. A giant bear comes and kidnaps a woman from your village. What are you supposed to do? Is, is the feminist friendly, noble thing to do to just like 
let her be kidnapped and live in a dungeon. Like, I don't know what people think Gaston should have done. Well, Gaston only wanted to save her so that he could marry her herself himself. I so- agree, but also like somebody needed to save her. Like, it's just, it's very complicated. Like he's the only yeah. one in the village who's willing to do anything. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Nobody seemed to care that Belle went missing because they think her father is, you know, a benevolent loony, like that he's just kind of like, uh-huh. ah, he's kind of crazy, but like nobody really cares. They're not valued members of the community. No, they're outcasts. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, so there's that. The Marxist stuff came later to me where, and I don't usually do a Marxist analysis, um, but it's just so obviously a, a messed up text from a class perspective. So the witch curses the beast because he's superficial, right? And judges her by her appearance. But he, she curses his staff too. They have to suffer for his sin. They too need to suffer under this curse that yeah. must never be broken. And like Mrs. Potts, her son is turned into a friggin' teacup and he is a child. Like the class implications are horrifying where it's like, you are not a real person if you're poor you are just an adjunct to the rich person who empo- like employs you. Like, and in the live action version where Emma Thompson plays Mrs. Cup and Mrs. Potts, they try to explain why this happened. And she's like, well, we could have rehabilitated and saved him, but we didn't. So we deserve to suffer too. It's like, hey, there was a power imbalance here because yeah. he's your employer. And this is 1700s France. Um, B, that doesn't explain why he cursed your child. Sorry, your kid was like five. So that rewrite is, it's almost more offensive than the original story that Disney told where it's just like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Yeah, it is very bizarre. As a kid, even I was kind of confused as to why the staff were you know, you're not really explained, it's not really explained to you, it's not very clear that Cogsworth and Lumiere, like, it's not very clear that they were human beings prior to this curse. Like, in other Disney films, there are animated things that don't typically talk in real life. In Cinderella, you have the mice, you know, in... Mm -hmm. Uh, the Little Mermaid, you have, you know, the seagull and the crab. So to me, like, I was like, oh, these are just like, and those weren't magical creatures or cursed creatures. Mm -hmm. So in this film, I was just like, oh, like a candlestick talks, a clock talks. It wasn't clear to me that they were cursed. And like, yes, as an adult, it became clear to me. I was like, oh, this is not cool no it's absolutely not cool it is unconscionable i think and it really communicates to children that poor people are are worth less like they're not real humans (laughs) um and they don't even get to be beasts like they don't even get to stay mammals like there's a hierarchy within this 
cursed world where he gets to at least stay a mammal and be something like vaguely human-esque, just super hairy. And they have to be like candelabras and brooms and teapots, right? Like they're so dehumanized to an extra level. And like, it's a really upsetting message. Like I'm I'm not even, I know that like I, some people might think that I am being too sensitive or that like you might give me the defense. Well, like children's media shouldn't be scrutinized this much. Like it's for kids, it's just supposed to be fun. I'm like, I get that, but at the same time, it's just such gross dehumanization. And this is something that kids are gonna watch like 80 times and they're gonna internalize these messages on some level. Like kids aren't stupid. Yeah, kids aren't stupid. Um, Like at a certain point, they figure it out and someone explains it to them. I definitely, when I figured out that the other like cursed beings in the household were like the staff, I was like, yeah, I felt a little betrayed. I was like, what? This is not cool. Why was, why were they punished? Because yeah, because the beast was a beast and like they encourage him at every turn. You know, they're like, okay, there's a woman in this castle. Like, maybe you guys can fall in love, control your temper. And he's like, no. Like, he's like, I'm just going to be, like, I'm just going to yell at her. Like, as I was rewatching this movie this afternoon, he like screams at her to come for dinner. And then when she refuses, he says, well, if you don't eat, then I, if you don't join me for dinner, dinner, then I guess you can just starve. And it's like, if she starves, she'll die. And then you no longer have a prisoner. Like, Mm -hmm. what's the logic here? Like, there's absolutely nothing redeemable about this beast character. Okay, he learns how to eat with a spoon, but like- That's stupid because he was a human at one point. Did he not eat with spoons when he was a human? How did he forget that ability when he became a beast? Like, he remembers how to talk remembers how to walk, remembers who his staff are. So why is that the one piece of information he didn't retain? I, uh, we're supposed to believe that somehow he just like became feral and wild, but he was angry before, he had a temper before, and then he had a temper during. So it's like, what? I don't know. There's like very little story continuity and yes, willful suspension of, de- of belief, but it's very clear that this narrative, not to name drop the show, but it doesn't hold up over time. I mean, the animation does, the songs do, but the core part of the narrative is like, uh-uh, no, no. No, and also Belle as a protagonist doesn't hold up because she is not a three-dimensional character. She's too perfect, right? And this was the era when Disney princesses had to be flawless. They couldn't have any of their own problems. They just lived to serve others. They're these selfless beings who sing beautifully and are traditionally attractive, like, and look great in their one outfit that they're allowed. Like, it's just, they don't get to be fully fleshed out human beings. and 
like what are we telling young women right like you should sacrifice yourself from your father who like while it is in some ways noble because what happened to him was not his fault also why does Belle have to sacrifice herself for him right like well yeah the father says that he said well like no save yourself I'm old I've lived my life yeah I've made my choices I like kind of did something silly and like go like don't pay for my sins yes but like yeah if you admire that about her like she doesn't really get to be funny she doesn't get to be angry she just gets to be really sanctimonious um she's such a martyr right and that kind of character this idea that female characters need to be morally pure and they need to be martyrs like that was I mean, the dominant form of female representation for women heroes, like for heroines, for all of the 20th century, right? Like you were only a worthy woman if you were perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise you were a supporting character, you were like a villainess. And that too is dehumanizing, right? Like the beast gets to be, he gets to imprison people. He gets to yell at his staff, be a terrible employer. He doesn't know how to use a spoon. And he's still the hero of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Like, Belle is also, like, she's kind of a bitch. Like, I know that Gaston, like, relentlessly pursues her. And women don't have to be nice to men who are rude to them. Um, But she's just, like, she's just, like, I don't know, I guess giving her the personality of like, cause she says to him like, oh, what was the line she says to him? Whatever, she's like super rude to him, which like actually I'm, I'm fine with because like Gaston's pretty much like a dick who's relentlessly pursuing her. But like, I guess her whole thing is like, this city is too, this little town is too small for me. I want adventure, I want to get out. And the way she gets out is by somehow getting captured as someone else's prisoner. So she just trades one prisonership for another, a prisoner in this small town where she'd either have to marry Gaston or being a literal prisoner, I guess somehow by her own free will, cause it's her choice um, at the behest of this beast. And then in the end, she traps herself into marriage. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny because she want what she claims to want and when she when we meet her is adventure in the great wide somewhere, right? So that implies travel, right? At the very least to Paris. Like she wants at the very the very least she should be leaving Provence. But she marries some guy who has a castle just outside of her town, right? She hates her poor provincial yeah. town. He also lives there. He just like lives in, I guess, the the suburbs of the town. Um and so she basically has to abandon her dreams for love and there's no point in the movie where they let you know like oh he's going to alter his life plans to accommodate her like they're gonna go on a tour of europe and see italy like they're gonna go to belgium no like very much the movie suggests they go and they live in his castle and the adventure she had was she walked through the forest and got to live in his castle which is like, you know, a couple miles outside of time, outside of town. So this character isn't self-actualized at the end. She marries this guy who's a jerk, um, who's 
okay, this is superficial, but he's hotter as a beast than he is as a person. No, I love, I oh, love yeah. the prince. I, I love oh, yeah. a long, long haired prince, but ever, everyone's different. Okay, I guess I just always thought Prince Eric was the hottest of all of the princes. I um, mean, he is, but for me, it's Prince Eric, Beast. I mean, that's it. There are no other princes to me. <laughs> yeah, those are definitely like, I guess Fox Robin Hood is up there. Who doesn't True. like Fox Robin people. Hood? Yeah, people, people really love him. He was handsome. Handsome fox. That's why they call someone a fox when they're good looking. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and foxes really are beautiful creatures. I saw one, like one just randomly passed me when I was in Forest Hill a couple years ago. It's just walking down the street, just all oh. casual. Like it didn't realize it was a fox in downtown Toronto, but it was beautiful. It was a beautiful fox. Anyway, but like those people, because, you know, these are deals between countries or doing an element of statecraft, at, or at the very least, there there is a symbol of unity between those two countries. Belle does not have that. She has the people in her town who do not care about her. No one is coming after the beast if something bad happens to her. Yeah, agreed. And like, that's the most striking thing the you know to me about this film the town doesn't like her the town recognizes that she's beautiful but she's odd because she reads yeah. and she's also odd by association because her father is an inventor who i guess you know is always experimenting in their makeshift garage whatever you know and fine that's enough othering to motivate you know a whole town of people to hate this one father-daughter duo um also like I guess yeah this is talked about in the live action but like we never are told about what happens to the mom she just doesn't have a mom and I she's think her mom child. is dead which is realistic to the time like lots of moms died and it wasn't a big deal because it's so common for women to die in childbirth they just don't even talk about her no she's erased from the story but at the same time i think i think you can just assume she probably died either having bell or one of bell's siblings yeah well we and, don't even know if bell has siblings well i don't think she has any siblings who are alive but many in france at this time period many children died in infancy so yeah I mean, that never bothered me because it was kind of like, yeah, she probably died a long time ago. Belle probably never knew her and therefore probably doesn't think about her. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit dark and the fact that they don't build the children watching it in on this is a little weird because yeah. yeah. kids obviously are going to be like, where's the mom? Um, yeah. In many cases, not every family has a mother, obviously, but, you know, where is another parent might be a, cro a, a thought that crosses some children's minds. Um, mm -hmm. But that would have been, I do think, the way that the mother's treated, which is she's erased, is kind yeah. of realistic to the time period where, like, it was just so dying in childbirth was was a banal occurrence. Like, it was just like, okay, she's dead. Yeah. Like, move on. Yeah. You don't I have mean, a mother. Neither does half the village. Yeah. No, it's it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, and I mean, look, like, I think we can still enjoy watching this film. 
Um, and I'm like quite ambivalent whether or not I'll show it to my own kid. Hopefully Disney will pump out a few more classics by that time. But, um, you know, like I really enjoyed this movie growing up. I really enjoyed the soundtrack. Maybe I'll just play the soundtrack and I won't play the film. I think that that's a reasonable strategy. Mm-hmm. I think I'll probably end up showing it to my kid because she'll see it somehow, right? Like it's yeah. such a classic. I don't see a world in which she never asks to watch it or no one shows it to her. I hope it's not her favorite. Like I hope she prefers Moana and Frozen, uh, but who knows? Like she might fixate on this one and then we'll have to, as she gets older, have some very critical discussions of the messaging of this film and why it's a little bit problematic. Like what is ha- what is going on here? Why is this sexist and classist? And also I do think it's condescending to the townspeople. Like yes, the townspeople discard Belle and don't care about her because she's kooky and she reads, right? But she also is such a smug dick to them. Like she's sweet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say before too. Like I couldn't find the words, but she is super smug. Yeah, like a little town full of little people. Like so dismissive. And to be fair, they would have thought she was weird for reading because at this time period, poor provincial people have no leisure time, right? Like there's so much work to do. Um, And they also can't even afford the candles to read at night. So it must be odd to them. They must be like, how is she reading so much? Like, doesn't, they don't have a staff. How is she doing it? Like, I do understand why that was seen as peculiar and like her priorities were out of whack with theirs because these were people, like these were peasants who were constantly trying to, get the harvest in right like so I kind of get it and she is so condescending towards them like she patronizes them like the only person in her town she seems to have respect for is the bookseller um who clearly is also more affluent like in addition to having more formal education and that kind of privilege he's obviously more affluent like he's a successful merchant so already she seems to have this like holier than thou, smarter than thou attitude. Like she doesn't have any time for these people. She can't wait to get out of there um, as though none of these people are capable of having adventures and no one can understand her. And then like the person she chooses instead of them is this abusive beast. Like as though he's somehow better than all of the people in this town. And I know Gaston is awful, but like there could have been other men in this town, right? Like some of them might've been upstanding citizens who were nice to their wives and just, you know, were really great farmers. And there is lots of dignity in that. Like that's an important job and and it's a complicated job. Like farming involves a lot of science. If you're gonna be a farmer today, many farmers spend years at university learning agricultural sciences. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, and at the time while they didn't have formal education, like you studied how to be a farmer from your dad or your mom who's also a farmer and you learned all these things and there's a science to a harvest. So I feel like she as a character is, no, I'm just gonna say it, she's insufferable. Yeah, she is. She's like the, she's the, yeah, I would say like the rudest princess. Like 
she's not uh yeah i'm not down with her personality like i don't love it yeah she's a martyr with her father and with the beast but she's like in a very dramatic performative way but she's also such a jerk to everyone in her town none of whom she deems good enough to be her friends and I just don't buy that they started it. I don't buy that they rejected her first. She's going around singing the song about how they're little people and they don't matter. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't really buy that either. They don't seem to be like, yeah, they don't seem to be all that bad of people. They're just like trying to buy eggs. And, you know, I need six eggs. That's too expensive. You know, that line, it's just, they're just, yeah. they're just trying to get by. Yeah, they're yeah. just trying to get by. It's a hard life being a peasant in Provence at this time. Like, and that's another thing, Disney, like, Disney really Disneyfies a lot of pastoral settings. Like, that's one of the things they do where it's like, oh, isn't this kind of quaint? And all these people are just like they're just dicks to Belle that's they just don't want her to read it's like no no no. they've got other shit to do that's why they don't understand why she spends so much time reading because it is yeah hard to be a peasant right you are yeah. erasing all of the work all of these people are doing just to get through the day and have enough food to feed their children yeah yeah it's so true because like Belle doesn't seem to really do anything all day no I'm like in part it's because I mean I do think it's a bit unrealistic how little she has to do all day, but I guess in part, by contrast, she has more leisure time because like, she's an only child. She doesn't even have a mom. Her dad doesn't seem to have like particularly high standards. So he's not like beating her for not keeping a perfect home or anything like that, which a lot of women would have experienced at the time. So Mm -hmm. I guess she has more leisure time than somebody who like has 16 siblings and is expected to like, help raise them until they get married and raise their own 16 children like yeah it you know so perhaps in that regard while they're somewhat outcast and her father doesn't have a lot of money none of these people have a lot of money and so there's a certain degree of privilege because she just doesn't have as many people to look after yeah yeah i agree i mean you know he says he's going you know the father's going to the fair to hopefully like win an award and he's not like, and while I'm gone, fully clean the house. Like, you know, from top to bottom, make sure it's spick and span by the time I come home. He's just like, yeah, I'm going. Do whatever you want. Yeah, she has a tremendous amount of freedom for the era, which like we can view as unrealistic or we can just view as like a symptom for father being mm-hmm. kind of absent-minded and not behaving like a typical patriarch. Listen, Snow White cleaned after seven dwarfs mm-hmm. that weren't even her kin. You know? She was a domestic servant. Yeah. So I don't particularly think Beauty and the Beast as a story has held up, but I do agree with you that the music holds up. I agree with you that I think the casting holds up, like the voice actors. I mean, Angela Lansbury, Queen. Anytime you cast her in anything, that's just like A plus. I mean, Howard Ashman, any work he did is a masterpiece. Like, I'm glad we have it. So there are lots of elements that I think make this movie worth 
watching and even re-watching if you've already seen it before. Like, I'm not saying that we should just discard it and pretend it never happened. Like, we don't need to erase it from the Disney filmography. But at the same time, I do think we need to watch it with a critical lens and really call out what's problematic about it so that we don't accidentally internalize all these messages. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I'm glad that, you know, we're going over these because over, you know, this Disney film and we'll do more in the future because, you know, like for obvious reasons, I mean, they deserve to have like a critical eye, like look at them again in adulthood. I mean, they've redone the animated classics and or they're redo, continuing to redo the animated classics from our childhood. And, you know, while there is some critical conversation around it as those live action films come out, you know, nobody's really going hard at them because everybody needs Disney and like the Disney, like machine, uh, you know, Hollywood is so dependent on the, the Disney machine. And so, yeah, for sure. There's like academic literature out there, you know, people in the, ivory tower are talking about it but um yeah it's just like really good to bring this discussion like kind of down down to earth you know and talk about you know just in the way that we do so I'm glad with you know that critical lens but also just like with our own personal take on it totally agree um another trend's interesting is like when they do the live action versions and none of them really reclaim the story in the radical way you want them or retell it and I would say the one where they get closest to doing this radical retelling would probably be Cruella except like Cruella's a sociopath like Cruella like the fact that her mother was killed by a Dalmatian doesn't make it doesn't make it okay that she wanted to like kill somebody's baby Dalmatians to make a coat yeah I mean I haven't seen Cruella but everything from that I've heard from like you know critics and also just people who watched it are just like this is a this is a a beautiful film it makes no sense like we did not need half as much of this story and yeah I I mean, it just really plays into this really weird narrative. I didn't under, I didn't know that that was like the her motivation for like killing Dalmatians and like making them into fur coats. But like, that's just like a little too eye for an eye for me. And for me to be like, I understand human behavior and I get that revenge is a thing, but like an eye for an eye, like that literally come on like that's not yeah it doesn't really jive with human behavior for me I don't know really fully what they're trying to accomplish right now with these live action versions like do they want to be woke do they want to be nuanced or do they just want to make money and I think the answer is usually they just want to make money but then they also want to get points for being progressive but like often just can't because the original IP, there isn't really a way to make it super progressive. The most progressive thing I think Disney has done was Once Upon a Time actually did a pretty good job for many of the stories, not all, 
of retelling them, adding nuance, adding layers, adding character development, adding motivation, adding social commentary. Like that show, because it was several seasons long, just had more time and more space to delve into the complexities of these stories and to inject more complexity into stories that had been presented to us pretty simplistically, right? Yeah. So that I felt like for the first few seasons was an excellent show that was doing something very interesting, but then it just becomes about like cross promotion for Disney. Yeah, because the first few, for the first few seasons, they got the IP, but like Disney wasn't really investing in the show. Mm -hmm. um, and then once it became like a full cult hit that like people all over the world were watching um then they kind of like took it under its machinery mm -hmm. wing and they invested more resources into the show which is why it went for so long but for the first couple of years it was just kind of like eh, we'll see what happens and like that's when the show was at its best when the writers were um like Kitsis and Horowitz were like just like exacting their vision they were just like playing it out and then it became this cult hit and disney was like oh we gotta capitalize off of it yeah yeah always they ruined things by making money off of them i mean and what they did with beauty and the beast was interesting because first of all they had beauty and the beast intersect with rumpelstiltskin which was you know interesting um mm -hmm. but they were really asking like they're like acknowledging that the beast i.e rumble was awful and flawed but the question is like can he be redeemed is the way bell sees him is that his true self or is that what she's projecting onto him and that's true of many relationships like real life relationships where you have to ask yourself that question is it that i connect with them and therefore i see their potential and i see the real them or am i projecting my desires onto them and I mean, also they did some other progressive things like when she comes to Storybrooke, like they're living together and they're not married. Like they didn't expect them to get married before, you know, sleeping together. So there are some progressive sexual politics that they don't even really go into. They just sort of present in a very matter of fact way. Like they're not fraud. It's just like, this is a given, like adults will date um, and they won't get married right away, especially after like, a tumultuous history with this partner and you're getting back together with them you probably won't immediately like put a ring on it you'll probably wait and see how it goes so i felt like once upon a dime did some by disney standards quite revolutionary things uh, it also was probably the best at reclaiming villain stories by just injecting new details and showing you their backstories like it was probably the best at humanizing them in part because they had more time right you have 22 episodes a season so it's it's easier to do that and make it believable and make it subtle but these live action movies that are two hours long like like you're not updating or retelling the story in a meaningful way you're just putting in like emma watson and trying to make a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're really not doing much. And I mean, it really speaks to the fact that they like 
don't really have to. Um, no one's really demanding that much more out of them. I mean, there will always be that desire for people to see more of themselves in Disney films, but Disney just really, there's, they're not losing anybody. Like they're not losing any significant portion of their audience. No. Yeah, by not the doing it. could probably make more creative decisions than they do, but they always make the cynical save money decision, right? Like, it's like I, The Bachelor. Excuse me? It's kind of like The Bachelor. Yeah, it and it's an ABC property and ABC is owned by Disney. So yeah. <laughs> it makes sense that The Bachelor is the way it is. And The Bachelor has tons of synergy with Disney. Like, have you ever seen that Disney wedding show that's hosted by yes. Beth Higgins? Like, yes that show is i mean it's entertaining but yeah. that show is something else like it's an interesting portrayal of the wedding industrial complex because getting married at disney world which they don't really get into the economics of it is so expensive and yeah. these people are having incredibly lavish weddings but no one really gets into like why these people are investing so much money in getting married at disney where like it's way more expensive. There's a huge markup compared to getting married at any other like nice venue, right? And in part, it's because they've been conditioned since childhood to want the Disney fairy tale wedding. And so they want to spend all of their money on doing it at Disney where they can actually live their dream of being Cinderella. Like yes. capitalism and storytelling go have been combined better by Disney than by anybody else ever in the history of the world, right? Like they just get it. They get how to monetize their storytelling so many different ways, right? Like they just, they can monetize anything. They will like, they're evil geniuses. And they yeah. have, yeah, we all have Disney Stockholm syndrome. Oh, we absolutely all do. I mean, there are um, entire TikTok channels just devoted to making the food from Disney World. Like, like, this is how, yeah, like exactly what I said. Like, this is how you make the food from Disney World. Like, entire TikTok channels. So it's just like a little, like, it's a little much. But you know what? We can't be blind to it. We can't say like, oh, we wish it could be different. Yeah, we all wish it could be different. But it's not. So. And you're allowed to take pleasure in it too and still realize it's problematic. Like, listen, I went to Disney World, I think, six times as a kid which is a huge privilege because it's expensive um mm. but we went again and again because my parents had the means to and also liked going because we were well behaved right like we were yeah. well behaved because we wanted to be there right it's they design an experience that is meant for families um they truly understand what families want out of a vacation the kids want to be occupied and they want to see their disney heroes and the parents want to be able to go to good restaurants at night that serve wine like that is you honestly that's all my family wanted and you can achieve that at Disney World they have fireworks every single night like it is it's incredibly opulent but also it is fun right like they they give you a quality product and same thing with their movies while their movies are designed to sell toys and get kids to want to watch them a billion times. They also invest a ton of money and a ton of time into making these, right? Like they do have good production values. 
So Disney is like, honestly, Disney is complicated. I'm not going to entirely condemn them and I'm never going to like ever going to entirely unproblematically endorse them. <laughs> like that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason we all love them because we're conditioned to as children and because there is a lot of quality there. If you, I was watching, um, I think it's called Charming on Netflix, which is this like, um, Wilmer Valderrama and Demi Lovato cartoon where he plays a charming prince and he has to like pick a wife and it's just a Disney ripoff and the lyrics aren't good. The music is not the same quality. The animation is not the same quality. It's all subpar. And the entire time you're watching, you're like, Disney does a better job. Like this is not Disney. A five-year-old could tell this wasn't Disney. And I don't know if you had that experience when you were little of watching other animated movies that weren't done by Disney and being like, this isn't Disney. Like I can tell that the quality is inferior. Totally. I don't even think I watched anything that wasn't Disney when I was a kid. Like animated uh-huh. for sure. No, I can Maybe there was one, but it doesn't come to mind. I mean, I remember when A Bug's Life came out, that was Pixar and Ants Life. They were owned by Disney, yeah. Yeah, and so there was a marked difference between those two films. Um, But honestly, that was it. We were not exposed to anything that was, you know, outside. Nothing. We were shills for Disney. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was just oversaturated. Why not? I mean, they cornered a market. They practically cornered the market of children's toys in the 90s too, right? Like the the 80s belonged to Star Wars toys. The 90s belonged to Disney toys. Like yeah. they, and now they own Star Wars. So, <laughs> so they own all the toys and they own Marvel too. So they can just make all the money, right? Like they own... They own everyone's childhood to this day. Um, And you're allowed to be nostalgic for it. Like, I don't want to condemn people for being nostalgic or for having a fondness for things you were raised to do. Like I, my daughter has this anthology of nursery rhymes, classic nursery rhymes that someone gave her. Mm -hmm. And 85% of them are problematic. Like they're ableist or they're subtly racist or they're blatantly sexist like the list goes on they're heteronormative like there are so many problems with these nursery rhymes and yet people are still making books with them because lots of people remember having heard them growing up and they didn't think critically about them right they just like they just like the rhyme right like you're not actually thinking about the messaging oftentimes and you might be internalizing the messaging which is problematic but I do understand why people find comfort in things that they're familiar with and why like these rhymes that are way more problematic than Beauty and the Beast frankly a lot of them like I don't know Mm -hmm. if any of you've read Simple Simon but whoa that shouldn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. there's a lot of there are a lot of like fucked up Disney properties um, and like by no means is uh, Beauty and the Beast like the worst. <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's not as bad, obviously, as Song of the South. Having said that, that's not really an endorsement to be like, it's better than Song of the South. Like that, that's a pretty right. low bar. Like Song of the South is blatantly racist. I mean, also sexist, of course. It's this white supremacist patriarchal text 
that also was bizarrely low budget. That's why half of it is live action because Disney wanted to save money on animation. Oh, I honestly, I, I don't even know what Song of the South is. I'm so glad I don't. I was never exposed to it as a child. And I, even Disney recognizes how fucked up it is and hasn't put it on, you know, plus. Like they, it's not there. You can't, I can't find it. I've never tried to find it because I don't really care to watch it, but I don't even know what it is. You could um, never really watch it even when we were younger. It was incredibly hard to source. Like I'm familiar with it because there was a ride at Disney World called Thunder Mountain where it was Song of the South themed and they sang Zippity Doodah, which is the marquee song from that movie, which is a good song, but like the, the plot of that movie is incredibly problematic. Um, anyway, and it was a good ride. Um, it's just, you've got a lot of animatronic things singing along and you're like oh this is fun you go down a log flume but I didn't know the movie and my parents I remember asking them about it and they're like oh that's not really one we watch um not that we could have accessed it even if we wanted to yeah Um, but it Disney they've now redone Thunder Mountain so it's not Song of the South themed but even though they had kind of disappeared the movie they still, it's weird, like at their theme park, they still had odes to it. Mm. So there was, yeah. this, like, there was this tension, this contradiction. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, imagine there are some, you know, theme park goers that they have to satisfy from certain demographics and to get rid of it entirely would upset them. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely out. right. It could have yeah. been. Uh, it could have been playing into nostalgia for certain people. Like, I don't know. I've been on the ride. I don't think when my parents knew it was Song of the South themed when they took us on it, they're just like, oh, it's a lock. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, so much of Disney, I mean, so much of culture, but so much of Disney, which makes up so much of our culture. So there's a very like overlapping diagram, uh, Venn diagram there. Like so much of it is like very deeply coded, even for adults who don't really know, but especially for children. And that contributes to like so much of our indoctrination Um, because it is so much of like monoculture when you are a child. And there's lots of aspects of like child rearing that's like monoculture, depending on like the type of child rearing that you choose. Um, But it's pretty hard to avoid Disney. I mean, I have three nephews. Uh, They're all, you know, my sister exposes them to like lots of different things, Um, but they like Star Wars and stuff like that and like hockey. Um, but one time my eldest nephew who's four came home and was like, I want to watch Frozen. My sister was like, oh, I never would have thought that you would want to watch Frozen just because it's like, you know, I mean, any kid can watch it, but you know, she, she was like, ah, Star Wars, Frozen, not really the same thing. Um, and it's because a kid in his class, like kept on talking about Frozen and he's four. <laughs> so now he's like obsessed with Frozen and like that's how kids get into things. But 
you know um, is like it is designed for children to be obsessed like when Beatrice was crying when she was a baby I would play do you want to build a snowman and she would stop the song the song it was made in the lab to appeal to me like I love it they love it they absolutely love it um so yeah I mean I'm excited to explore more of Disney here and talk about it more uh I think it's very complicated to untangle people like to pretend it's simple but it's not no it's complicated and you're also allowed to like it like I'm not here to tell you that you are a morally bankrupt person or a sellout if you like Disney like hell I plan on showing my daughter many Disney movies not all of them but many I will probably um you know depending on the exchange rate for the Canadian dollar take her to Disney World as a child um because I think it's actually really fun to take kids there because they they think it's real and you get this look of wonder on their little faces like I understand the pleasure in children becoming obsessed with Disney and thinking it's real and knowing the songs like it's adorable I get it right I I'm not made of stone no you're not far from it and that's okay I love it well I'm glad we talked about this me too yeah well what's holding you up this week Sarah What's holding me up is season two of Lupin. So Lupin is a French show about a gentleman thief uh, that is available on Netflix. It's excellent. You can watch it with subtitles or you can watch it dubbed. My husband and I, while I would prefer to watch it with subtitles, we often do work while watching TV. So we watched it dubbed and the dubbing is definitely a, a cut above most dubbing. Like it hasn't interfered with our enjoyment of it um, just so that we can have the second screen Um, I love the story it's so much fun it's delicious like it's fast paced Um, it's I mean sexy because it's French like all French people just have a certain je ne sais quoi it seems like not to fetishize an entire country's worth of people but it's just everyone's so elegant there, at least in the world of Lupin. Um, so if you are, I'm not a huge Francophile, but if you've got even a, a tiny piece of your heart that is a bit of a Francophile, you will love Lupin. So I, there are now two seasons on Netflix, or as they call it, part one and part two, which is just so chic that they don't call it a season, they call it a part. Like, wow, just the French, they're so sophisticated, so tasteful. What about you, Kaylee? What's holding you up? They know what they're doing. I love it. Well, this week I have a product recommendation. And it's funny, my sister bought this for me. It is a matte liquid lipstick. And it's, and she bought me, it's, it's in this like very red color called Autumn. It's by this brand called Cheekbone Beauty. And I would never like tokenize uh, a a group of people, Um, but anyone who has been paying attention to the news would know that there has been a resurged cultural conversation around the treatment of indigenous people here in Canada that is very worthy of conversation. And so I'm not bringing this up based on that because I think that's tokenizing, but I literally happened to receive this lipstick in the mail today. Um, And my sister 
bought it, you know, like oh, 10 days ago, let's say. Um, and so it's by the brand Cheekbone Beauty. I have tried, I'm a makeup, like, obsessed person. I have a huge bag of lipsticks. Um, many of them are red. This is the best red lipstick I have ever tried in my entire life. It wow. is. I, and that's like saying a lot for me. I've tried Pat McGrath, NARS, MAC, um, Benefit, uh, Too Faced, um, uh, Laura Mercier, uh, Hourglass, like Chanel, Estee Lauder, every single like major red lipstick in from a brand I have tried. This is the bed red, best red lipstick on the face of the planet. Um, it is opaque. It is blue toned. It is a universal shade and it does not move. And so like, I would not recommend a, a lipstick these days in the era of mask wearing, um, like almost period, I would not yeah. recommend. But I, you know, bought a few new dresses today and I was trying on, you know, which lipstick would go with what. And I, I was like, oh, my sister just got me this. I should, I should try it on with some of the dresses. It does not budge. And so if you are in the mood to support a Canadian, well, an indigenous owned Canadian brand uh, and you need other beauty products, I imagine if their red lipstick is this good, then everything else that they make is incredible. Um, yeah, so check out Cheekbone Beauty um, because it's better than everything else. <laughs> so that's what's holding me up this week. I can't wait to wear it. I, patios are just opening up now. Sarah and I have already been on a patio. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can't wait to head out with some red lipstick on. You need to wear that this weekend. I can't wait to see this on you. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm so excited. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I'm super into it. Yeah. All right. Well, until next week, dear listeners, we're going to give you our social media information and then we're going to leave. So you can find me at Sarah Sahagian. Where can they find you? You can find me on every platform, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, uh, at Kaylee Ames. Find me there. It's great. So guys, please take care of yourselves and hold yourselves up. Thank you.